Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and chinchillas everywhere banking on climate change. It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means. It's tea with BBP. Have you never heard of a chinchilla coat? My gosh. Live from Michigan State University campus, it's your host, (laughs) Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBP, international superstar and diva of SLA. And speaking of chinchillas, Mm. with me are my co-hosts who are all about the warm and fuzzy, Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Say hello, guys. Hello, everybody. hello. Okay, nobody knows why I said that during the intro. You were making faces at me about chinchillas. Have you never heard of a chinchilla fur coat? No, not really. No, that my God. That would take God. a lot of chinchillas. I know. That's it? why they're one of the most expensive ones. Huh. Do you own one? Of course I do not own one. I would never do that to a little chinchilla. Who, who would want to wear a chinchilla coat? Because they're warm. They were, you know, they're, they're, huh. it's a South American animal, so it's one mm. of those, you know, probably indigenous kind of, I don't know, we'll have to look it up and see, but they're actually huh. from South America, chinchillas. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> So much, right. so much for that. Maybe nobody. Else. Maybe I should have said minks. I don't know, but I thought chinchilla sounded a little more exotic and a little more fun. Chinchilla. Isn't that a great word? Chinchilla. Mm-hmm. Say it out loud, everybody. Chinchilla. Chinchilla. There you go. Well, guess what? The diva tour is back on. Chinchilla. Oh, sorry. That's uh, chinchilla pet. No. Okay. And when the diva tour is back on, guess where I'm going tomorrow, Angelica? Um, you will be going to Portland. No. Oh, well. The great state of Alabama. I'm going oh. to the University, yeah, the University of Alabama. Uh, the student association there is having their annual conference, and so I'm giving the invited talk on linguistics. They always have one person literary studies, one person linguistics invited, and then there are papers, of course. And so I'm doing the linguistics talk. And so guess what the title of my talk is, Walter? Um, I have the slightest. Okay. It's all about the input. No, it's not. Mm. My talk, all about my talk is actually sort of broad and almost philosophical in a, in a certain sense. It's it's called "What Has Happened to Second Language Acquisition," hmm. and it's about the field and where the how the field started and where the field is, and how I'm a little bit sort of surprised at where it is. But anyway, but that's another story. So the diva tour is back on. Then I have Southwest Colt at the beginning of March. Then we're gonna three of us and and everybody else in the booth. We're gonna be in Columbus at the end of the month, right? For um, right. OFLA, for the Ohio Foreign Language mm-hmm. Association. Then I will be at CI Mitten in, when is it, in Detroit in April 22nd, I think it is. Then the following weekend, I'm going to be in Colorado again. Yay. Oh, goodness, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then that concludes the Diva Tour. I'm actually going to be in Paris in May, but that's really not part of the Diva Tour. That's that's a different, whole different symposium. Man, thing. but the Diva going international, I like it. You should. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I am, I am an international superstar. What well, can that's I say? yeah, true. All right. Um, let me remind everybody what's our contest this month, Walter. You tell everybody what the contest is. Happy birthday to you. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday. No, 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 no. That's not what the contest okay, is. Okay, it's a birthday card contest. By the way, I do have a shout out, but let me remind, remind me to do my shout out after your okay. contest thing. Birthday card contest. I think we got our first one. Mm. I just noticed it in the email. So <laughs> we got one. Cool. Okay, so we'll tell them what the contest is. Oh, well, uh, I, I thought you were going to tell them what the All contest right, I'll is. Tell them what the birthday is. card contest. Send in your birthday cards. Yes, these are generic birthday cards and not cards for me or cards for Angelica or Walter. They're just generic birthday cards that people can use if they want to. And they have to have an L2 theme to them, right? Um, all the rules are on our website. So go to teawithbbp.com and you can see there. Um, how to submit, and we're looking forward to getting those. You have, what, another week and a half? You have till mm-hmm. February 28th. Is this a leap year? No, it's not. Mm-mm. February 28th. So that'll be the last day you can submit. So please get those in because we want to give away 
some copies of my newest collection of short stories, Dust Storm. I've got two copies that are dying to leave my shelf and go into some of our listeners' hands. So do that. Okay, and remember during the show, there's the SLA challenge question. I will give you a question in a few minutes. First person to make it to the phones will win a prize. Ding, 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 ding. Same for the Diva Challenge question. I'll read that question at some point. Oh, that's a great question. Actually, ah. both the questions are good. And you'll have the time to call in with the right answer and win a prize for that, too. And, of course, Angelica has her quote of the week. Do you not, Angelica? I sure do. And Walter has his read of the week. Don't you, Walter? Read of the week it is. And I heard that you have a little something special to read to us, too. That's not the read of the week. I do. Oh, when would you like to, me to read it? We'll get to that later. That's kind of okay. cool. Mm-hmm. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, 517-884-4321. Jen is on the phones waiting for your call. And uh, Gallico will be looking at Mixler to see who's lurking around there and trying to coax you into calling us. So remember, we're a call-in talk show. If you don't call in and talk to us, well, we're going to, I don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, um, our focus this week, our topic, we're going to get into it right away because we're going to, we have a guest call in a minute. Before I get into the topic, I just have to give a shout out, speaking of birthdays, because everybody knows it's my birthday this weekend, but my two students I'm working with at Independent Study this semester, Cam's birthday is today. Hmm. He's turning 21, so happy birthday, Cam. Wow. Shout out to you. And Jacob, the other person doing um, independent study with me this semester, his birthday is the same as mine on Sunday. And he's turning hmm. 22. So the three of us are going to celebrate our birthdays after Monday when I come back, from, uh, come back from Alabama. So, yeah. So happy birthday to Jacob and happy birthday to Cam. Okay, great. Our focus Do this they week- listen to the show? That's, Jacob has. I don't hmm. know if Cam is. Uh, okay, so our focus this week is universal grammar. The, so what is universal grammar? I'm going to go ahead and like uh, lay these things out. Um, because we're going to have somebody we're going to call on the phone in a little special interview here in a minute. Um, so let's talk about what universal grammar is. Why, and why does it cause so much debate? And what does it have to do with language teaching, if anything? These are really good questions. So let's start with a, just a little simple definition. Universal grammar is a construct in linguistic theory. Um, and as a construct, it's deceptively simple. And I say deceptively because, you know, the devil's in the details, right, Walter? Indeed. Yes. So... But in essence, UG is an innate set of constraints or principles and a set of features that are common to all human languages. That is, to be a human language, not Martian, not, not Uranian or Saturnian, but a human language, uh, means to be governed by universal grammar. So let me give an example of a feature and then one example of a constraint or principle so we can see if this helps people uh, conceptualize these. Okay, so let's look at the feature, one feature that's available in universal grammar that's uh, is the easiest to grasp. It's called tense. And tense refers to whether a sentence is marked for some time frame or not. That is present, past, or future. There's only three time frames that exist, right? Now, not all languages select the feature of tense to encode in sentences. Spanish does. Chinese does not. So according to the theory, there's a finite set of features that languages can select from, so languages don't get to make up features. There's only a finite set you draw from. And then depending on whether you select these features, that features helps determine whether you're Chinese or whether you're Spanish or Japanese and so on. In addition to that, there are principles and constraints. And one principle, or uh, it could be called a constraint, is what we call phrase structure. And what uh, the principle is that all languages consist of hidden phrases. Okay, so it's not just a string of words you hear or see, but there's actually hidden phrase structure inside language. And all phrases consist of what we call a head and a complement, and also what we call a specifier. I'm not going to get into the 
to the details of those things. Again, the devil's always in the details, right? But the head is the thing that gives the phrase its identity. So almost everybody knows what a verb phrase is or they've heard of a noun phrase. Uh, but then there are also functional phrases like tense phrase and agreement phrase and so on. So all these things are built into the nature of language. Unlike features, languages don't get to select whether to obey a principle or not. The principles and constraints are indeed universal to all languages. All languages must obey them. So let's look at two languages real quick to see how they vary according to universal grammar. And then we'll, we'll try to get into um, some conversations with people here in a minute. Um, let's look at Spanish. Spanish selects for tense, right, Walter? Yes. It does. Good. Good answer. It selects for tense and thus distinguishes between tensed and non-tensed sentences. So you can have finite sentences or what we call infinitives or non-finite sentences, right? And then Spanish also has what we call head initial phrase structure so that the head of a phrase always precedes its complement. So, for example, verbs always precede their complements in Spanish. Now, Chinese does not select for tense and thus does not distinguish between tensed and non-tense sentences. So in Chinese, all sentences are the same. There's no tense. Uh, but Chinese, like Spanish, is also head initial. So you get verb, object, word order, for example, as one example of how phrases are structured in, chi in Chinese. Now, Japanese, like Spanish, selects for tense and thus distinguishes between tensed and non-tense sentences, or what we say in linguistics is finite and non-finite sentences. But unlike Spanish and Chinese, Japanese is head final in all of its phrases. So in Japanese, for example, the object uh, precedes the verb, or the head, the verb, follows the complement, the object. And that's true for all phrases in Japanese. So what we say, the, the reason this is important to think about in terms of languages is various features of universal grammar and how certain principles play out give us the variation we see among languages. So the variation, what makes universal grammar interesting is the variation is finite. And in some cases, we can talk about languages being much more similar than they are different. So, for example, you can compare Japanese, which is a contemporary language, right? Mm -hmm. Right? How about classical Latin? Is it contemporary language? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you talk to, right? <laughs> no, classical Latin is uh, not a contemporary language. Nobody speaks it. And these are languages from opposite sides of the globe, right? And yet contemporary Japanese and classical Latin are exceedingly similar and how they are structured and the features that they have, for example. And then you can take something like Quechua and Turkish, again, opposite sides of the globe. And Quechua from Bolivia, for example, and Turkish from Turkey are also exceedingly similar in the features they select and how these things play out in terms of the languages. The idea is that once a language heads down a certain path, there are consequences that play out. And that's what makes languages behave the way they do. Okay, so now what is the evidence for universal grammar? Well, I could give Walter a quiz here. Walter, you have an MA in linguistics, don't you? Nope. Oh, boy. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the evidence for universal grammar is there's a number of things that people look at, but, but, but ultimately one of the major arguments for universal grammar is what um, people call the poverty of the stimulus. Okay? Um, and the poverty of stimulus basically says this. It comes from Plato's problem. Actually, Chomsky talked about Plato's problem. The poverty of stimulus says this. People come to know more about language than what they are exposed to. In other words, the language system you have built up in your head can't just come from the data you're exposed to. Something else is going on 
because the, the, the linguistic representation of your head is much more rich and much more abstract and also has things in it that just aren't evident in the input data. And there are certainly not things that anybody's ever taught. And so the poverty of the stimulus is a strong argument for something must be going in your head independently of the data um, you're exposed to. And so linguists have settled on the idea, or at least Chomsky and followers of Chomsky have settled on the idea that it's something like a universal grammar. Okay, so that, that's, that's, that's our little intro to get people's appetites wet. I know people are going to mix their eyes questions and, and call in. Um, and in a minute, we're going to um, get my friend Jason Rothman on the phone from England um, to talk about uh, universal grammar because I have a question for him. And uh, so it's nice to have somebody else's voice talking about this kind of stuff. But uh, before we get him on the phone, I am going to give everybody the SLA challenge question because it's topically related, right? Okay, here's the SLA challenge question. First person to the phone wins a nice prize, a date with Walter or a date with Angelica. Your choice. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's my birthday. What? It's my birthday month. I'm giving you guys away. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay, here's the SLA challenge question. What is the name of the scholar who wrote a 2003 book published by Cambridge called Second Language Acquisition and Universal Grammar? I shall repeat. What is the name of the scholar who wrote a 2003 book published by Cambridge titled Second Language Acquisition and Universal Grammar. First person to the phone with an answer will win a prize. And I'm going to look at Daniel to see if he's got Jason ready on the phone there. Um, and if he does, I'm going to ask Jason if he's on the line. Jason, you on the line? I sure am. Hey, Jason. Nice for you to be with us. Jason, you're, you're, you're with us all the way from Reading, UK, correct? Correct. Now, tell everybody how far Reading is outside of London. Tell us a little bit geographically where it is so people know where you are. That is a great question, Bill. And I can't give you precise directions because I don't know my left from my right or my north from my south. But I can tell you it's 25 minutes from Heathrow and really very, very close to London. So I think it's about 60 kilometers in. You fill in the actual direction north-south. I'm not quite sure, but it's about 60 kilometers from downtown London. It's west, slightly northwest, but west of London, yes. I knew you would know that. Of course I would know that. <laughs> and, and I have a question. Can I answer the book question and win the prize? Because I know the answer. Oh, Jason, that's not fair to our listeners. But I'll tell you what, oh, because, because you're a guest, because you're a guest, um, we're going to send you a prize anyway, okay? Awesome. So, okay. So let me, let, me t let me ask you a question I have for people. I, uh, this is a question I get all the time, and I want to know what you think about this. Um, I, I gave people a little bit of overview. I don't know if you heard it, but I gave people just a really brief little synopsis of what UG is. What do you think is the most, uh, uh, the often the most, the, the greatest misconception that people have about universal grammar? What would you say? Okay. So first I did hear, and it was great. In fact, I was uh, sweating bullets a little bit thinking, how am I in a minute going to explain what it is? But I don't have to because you did a far better job than I would have. But let me answer your question. So, you know, oftentimes when people hear that something's universal, and what we mean by that for in human behavior is that it's, it's inherent or it's uh, innate and everybody has it, is that as it relates to language, then therefore it's kind of like magic, right? In other words, that you're born, being born in the U.S. would mean, because you have a universal grammar, that snap, you speak English. And of course, that's just simply not true, right? Um, so like I said, a lot of people think that, um, that, it, that it's magic or it's something that because of it, 
there is no effort and no learning involved in the process of language acquisition. And that's simply just not true, right? So the idea is that universal grammar actually facilitates or guarantees, if you will, um, language acquisition, right? So it's not surprising that everybody acquires language because everybody is born with the mechanisms that foster this, that permit it, and in fact, barring any type of pathology. And what I mean by that is there are, of course, disorders to language. Some children right, are born right. with, um, with uh, predispositions to have problems um, in language, potentially problems uh, related to this universal mechanism. Um, so the, the idea is that it constrains, it guides, and in a sense it guarantees it. But of course you need input, right? Every word of the languages that you speak, whether you realize it or not, so it might be different between a first language for children – and second languages for adults in terms of the consciousness of the learning process, right? So for children, of course, it's not conscious. However, in the truest sense of the word learning, that is, you know, uh, coming to have an internal representation of something that is external. Nobody is born with the words of English because they happen to be born in an environment that speaks English. Um, so, in a, so in essence, UG is there and to be used and maximized. Um, guaranteeing language acquisition, but certainly not being something that magically makes it happen, right? There's a lot of learning that's involved. Right, right. Um, and I think, thing if, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to interject. I think that one thing that hangs people up is when we say guarantee, it makes it sound like, like something is automatic or you will, you will automatically be successful. The thing about what people have to understand is that in first language acquisition, how long it takes. It just, it's hours and hours and hours and hours. And the reason we say it guarantees is because that's all people are doing, you know, is learning language as children. With adults, um, if there were no first language kind of gumming up the works, you might have a situation, something like first language acquisition, where you could guarantee a native-like system at the end, but you can't because you've got that first language gumming up the works some way, which we're not quite sure how happens, but that's another show. We don't want to get in that. So exactly. what was the second thing you were going to say? Go ahead. Well, just building on that real quickly, you know, there's two main questions or two main trends that uh, people who work on language acquisition from a, a universal grammar perspective look at. And one you talked about, Bill, actually very nicely um, explained, and that is the logical problem or uh, Plato's problem, otherwise embodied by poverty of the stimulus, which you discussed. The other thing is called the developmental problem, and that relates to exactly what you just said, right? And that is... How do we explain the path and the patterns and the time frame of acquisition, especially under the account that we uh, believe you're born with a universal mechanism that, in a sense, um, really pushes you forward, right? So that's the other aspect that we're looking at. And, of course, it's probably in the domain of, the, of how the developmental uh, path, and that is how the developmental problem unfolds, that is the biggest difference between first and second language. So the second misconnect conception relates to that. And that is that universal grammar is simply not available after puberty, right? So this is almost the exact same argument as the critical period hypothesis. Potentially, we could say universal grammar terms, that's what the critical period hypothesis is. You have access to a language-specific, which we call domain-specific mechanism, that itself is universal grammar, part of a module that is specifically designed within your brain. Um, and the critical period would basically be 
you don't have access to that anymore. That that is maturationally determined. Let's say roughly around puberty, universal grammar is no longer accessible. Um, and that's actually quite sexy, for lack of a better term, because if that were the case, it would explain relatively straightforwardly the observation that adults are different from children, right? However, unfortunately, there's plenty of evidence that right. suggests uh, that, that universal grammar is available. And all that really means is that we need to look in other avenues uh, to find explanations for the, the difference that no one denies and, of course, is observable. Right, right? Right. So I think those are the two main misconceptions, that it's magic and that it's, it's a foregone conclusion that since adults are different in both path and also the system – um, that they acquire if it's a second language, that therefore that would be e easily mapped onto the claim that universal grammar is not available. That doesn't seem to be so straightforward if you look at the data, however. Right, right. And, and that's one reason I, I did this LA Challenge question because I think that book, who I'm the author, I'm not going to name because the author, that's the answer to the question. Um, I think it's a good book for people to look at to just see how much research there's been on this and what the how strong the evidence is for something going on yeah. in second language acquisition. Let me ask you another question real quick. We have a few minutes before we're going to start taking some phone calls here. I'm going to let you go. But in a nutshell, if you can say this in 50 words or less, Jason, what do you think is a takeaway for teachers? Why do teachers need to know about universal grammar? What 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 is what informs them for their language teaching, if, if anything? Okay. Well, let's, I don't think I can say hello, Bill, in 50 words, but I'm really going to try. And I've used up some of them. Okay. <laughs> so this, is, this, is, this is really a tough question, right? Um, and I'm not so sure that I'm going to have a wonderful answer for you, but I want to make the case that it's an essential part, that understanding how languages are acquired, not just in children, uh, but especially in adults, eventually will have some very large impacts on the way we teach, um, potentially, uh, if nothing more than informing teachers and other interested individuals, what we're up against, okay? Because we, we can design teaching to maximize the reality of the situation in which we are in, right? And that is, if you only have five hours a week, here potentially is the best way to do X, Y, and Z. What universal grammar approaches do, looking at second language acquisition, and let me say as an aside that this is not only the case for universal grammar, this would be true of any cognitive-based theory of second language acquisition is really looking, and I want to stress the word acquisition, and that is A, as opposed to second language learning. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive to from each other, but they're not, we can't conclude that they are exactly the same, right? And so what I would say is that um, I might dissent from some more, uh, so from some people within the paradigm, but what I would say is that um, potentially universal grammar might be able to tell you, or universal grammar studies might be able to tell you in a sense what might be more or less complicated for, um, for adults to, to acquire um, in a second language. Um, however, we can't neatly conclude from that 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 would mean we need to attack that particular property with some type of teaching intervention. So I think at present, um, the best connection that we have is to continuously work to understand what the process is, how language is right. processed right. by adults, right. potentially similarly or differently, and uh, in terms of acquisition, and from there informing um, teachers for that to be trickled down so that they understand how languages are acquired and to work 
around that. Obviously, you would be a much better person to answer that question, and I'm sure you'll talk about it for the rest <laughs> of the show. I have talked, yeah, I could, probably will come up in a question on the phone or through Mixler or something, so we'll probably get that question. And if not, I think what we're going to wind up doing is extending this conversation to next week, because it's such a big topic and such an important topic in the field. And I do think it has some implications for teaching, but not necessarily what I'm with you. I disagree with what some of the people from linguistic theory say are the implications for language teaching, and I'll I'll, I'll take those people on in due time. Um, yes, but yeah, but yeah. So, well, thank you, Jason. Um, we're getting calls already, so I have I've got to kind of let you go, even though I'd love to be chit chatting with you some more. Um, All right. Well- Everybody out there, uh, do a little Google search for Jason Rothman. You can see what an important person he is in the field of L2 research. He's at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. He used to be here in the United States, but he hopped a plane and went across the pond, and there you have it. Now he's driving on the wrong side of the road. That's all I can say. (laughs) I am. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Jason. Uh, I'll be talking to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you, guys, and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, I love talking to Jason. I've, I've worked with Jason on a couple of uh, papers and things together. Um, he's a great guy to work with, great guy to talk to. And as you could tell, he's never at a loss for words. <laughs> I, always tell, I always tell Jason, you're never at a loss for words. Um, so that was fun. Um, and I think we've got some calls coming in already. Jen, do we have somebody on the phone? We have, um, uh, let's see, I'm looking to see if Daniel's putting this person through. Daniel, is Scott on the phone yet? Oh, he's going to be there in just a second. Um, I'll repeat the SLA challenge question in the meantime um, for those of you trying to call in. I don't know if Scott's calling about that, but here's the SLA challenge question once again. What is the name of the scholar who wrote the 2003 book, Second Language Acquisition and Universal Grammar, which was, of course, published by Cambridge University Press? And I think Scott is on the line now. Scott, are you there? I am. Hey, Scott, you're calling from California, my home state. Yay. Yes, Roseville, California. I know Roseville. Of course I know Roseville. Um, those of you who don't know Roseville, get a map of California and look at it. You'll see Roseville down there. <laughs> so, Scott, what are you doing in Roseville? I'm on my lunch break. The kids are about to come in in about two minutes. Oh, that's right, because, yeah, it's 1225 there. Well, we won't keep you on yeah. the phone because you're on a break. So what are you calling about, Scott? What's up? I have the answer to your question. You do. Nice. Okay. So I do. let me just remind everybody, I always like to say it again um, to make sure people know what the question was. What is the name of the scholar who wrote the 2003 book, Second Language Acquisition and Universal Grammar, published by Cambridge University Press? Scott? Lydia White. Ding, Yay. ding, 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 ding. Yay. Yay, Scott. Terrific. So are you having coffee with your, uh, your lunch? No, I drink soda during my lunch. Okay, well, you can still have some coasters to put your soda down. Would you like anything else to go with that? We'll send you, we'll send you something. Be, we'll send you a little something. Okay, that'll be great. And I don't know if you remember me, but we um, both presented in Alaska two years ago at the uh, AFLA. Oh, yes, Scott. Of course I remember you. I didn't yes, recognize so. your voice because you have a sexy phone voice, and it's different in, oh, home, thank you. in person. <laughs> I said that so your students can think they have a sexy teacher. How's that? <laughs> yeah. I tell them that all the time. There you go. <laughs> hey, you know, if you don't toot your own horn, right? Right? Am I right? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, I do remember you, okay. Scott. I had a great time. You know, I, still, I wear my, my sweatshirt all the time that I got up there. Um, that hoodie I bought. Yeah, that's great. I went, go ahead. We went back there this last, I went again uh, last um, September again. Oh my gosh, you're like you're like what's her name? Sally Field. They like you. They really like you. <laughs> Good for you. All right, Scott, well, I'll let you go. And uh, thanks for okay. calling in and congratulations. A prize will be winging its way to you 
um, in the very near future. Okay, great. Thank okay, you so Scott, much. Good talking to you again. Bye bye. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. He does. Uh, Scott did. I remember Scott from last. He did a hmm. great presentation. Great. Uh, good guy. Really, really works well with teachers too. Really, really good guy. Um, all right. Um, okay. Uh, let me give the diva challenge question now before we go to Walter's segment. Is that okay, Luca? If I do that, Luca says yes. Okay. So here's the diva challenge question. This is a good one because this is this is what do you call it? What are you guys laughing at? Walter's <laughs> laughing at me. Angelica's laughing at me. I, I think it's your show. I just was surprised you're saying, is it okay, Luca? Well, because I mean, Luca's the one managing all the I time. Know, I want to make sure funny. that I don't screw up the time frames. Okay, so, so here's the Diva Challenge question. This is topical because we just had the Grammys, right? Okay, so question. Who has more Grammys, Adele or Barbara Streisand? Ooh. Who has more Grammys, Adele or Barbara Streisand? First one to call in with the answer, ding, 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 ding. Okay, so, Wally, do you have a Read of the Week for people since you have anything topical related to universal grammar and what we're talking about? I have the Read of the Week. Okay. I haven't read this, but well, PDP that... tells me it's a good read. So <laughs> Nice. A lot of people <laughs> telling you it's a good read, I'm not just me. So, yeah, I mean, apparently it's a, it's a national bestseller. It's a book. And this one, Keith Toda, just so you know, Mr. Twitter Man, does not cost... 100 or 200 dollars on Amazon it only costs 13 dollars <laughs> and 81 cents new 12 dollars and 95 cents if you want it used but anyway all that to say it's a book by a man named Steven Pinker which you probably maybe have heard of before it's called the language instinct how the mind creates language so there it is. That's a great book. That's a that's. I can't tell you much about it because, as I mentioned, well, I haven't read it myself. You should. So. It's a great. It's a, it's a book for everybody. It's not just a scholarly book. I mean, the guy writes a lot of books just for the general public, and that's a really accessible book if you want an introduction to highfalutin concepts in linguistic theory, how it applies to language acquisition, how it applies to all kinds of stuff. And he makes a nice, lays out a nice case for universal grammar and innateness of of language stuff. Um, so read it. It's really easy to read. Actually, it's it's. I always tell my students to read that book as an intro before they read anything else because it lays all the groundwork for all the highfalutin stuff they're going to get into when they get in their courses. So, Walter, you got to read that book. Read the book, Walter. Oh wait, that's me. Angelica, have you read that book? I have not. Has anybody in Mixler read that book? Are they saying anything about it? No, they're not. Okay, well. <laughs> all right. Shall I read my other thing? Oh, yeah, Walter had. Ooh, yeah, yeah, Walter, we got, we got an email from somebody. What was this email about, Walter? Well, this was, as I'm sure you're aware, this past week we celebrated the the holiday, Valentine's Day. And so someone sent us a little Valentine's poem. Hmm. This is from Andrea in Dallas. Are we ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, we says, are. Roses are rouge, violets azul. Team T with BVP, I sure love y- uh, y'all. <laughs> Not sure how Asul and y'all rhyme, but... Just keep doing the poem. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going. You've <laughs> provided great knowledge that has helped me to grow, imparting SLA wisdom in your ever-engaging show. From Bill's love of divas, Walter's bursting out in song, to Angelica's joyful laughter, one can't go wrong. So danka from all of us in our teaching position... May we continue to work toward language acquisition. Oh, oh, that's awesome. That is so, we love, is that Andrea? Yep. Oh, we love that, Andrea. Let's put that on the website. We'll give that to <laughs> Jen, and Jen can post it on the website. That, that needs to be Excellent. shared with everybody. 
Love that. Mm-hmm. That's that. That's worth. We should send Andrea a little prize or something. We should. And yes. she says that she met us all at Actful in Boston, and she's looking forward to seeing you again. Oh, okay. At S W Colt next month. Oh, in Oklahoma City. Great, great. Well, I'll look forward to. I'll be looking for her. So um, send her an email. Send her a reply and ask her for her address so we can send her a little something for sending. Okay. That. Great. Will do. Thank you so much. We signed her. Uh, her coasters, so she must have coasters already, so mm, we won't send okay. her that. Yep. She says we signed them at, at Actful. We'll send something else. <laughs> okay, since we're on the topic of Universal Grammar, let's get back to that. Um, we've got a few tweets coming in, uh, or had that came in that Luca handed to me. Um, the question that, that went out was, what comes to mind when you hear the words Universal Grammar? Which I think is a great question. What comes to mind when you hear that, right? Um, I like Jenny's response. Jenny goes, that I need to listen to this week's podcast. <laughs> um, Melanie says, Chomsky and Black Box. Um, Touch of Peace says that languages can be similar in one way or another and that Chomsky is genius. Uh, Longinus, I love this, Deus Ex Machina, he says, so mm-hmm. a machine from God, of course. Magister says he thinks of Eric Herman. I'm not going there, but okay. <laughs> um and this is, this is from Chris, and this is probably something I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and address right now. Chris says, looking for a genetic explanation for grammar seems reasonable, but UG seems incorrect or incomplete as an answer, in my opinion. Um, so it's unfortunate that we're tweeting because it's not enough to have an opinion about this, Chris. You have to tell us why you think it's incomplete or incorrect. There's actually a lot of evidence for universal grammar. Now, next, we don't have time for this show. I think next week we're going to look at alternatives, what, why, why people would argue against universal grammar and, and, and the role it plays in language acquisition and language more generally. Um, but this show, we're going to focus on the positive side of it. Um, and so there is actually a lot of evidence for it in both child and second language acquisition. Again, it comes down to that idea of how do you come to know so much that is unavailable for you in the input data. And one of the examples I always like to give people is something like um, contractions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are lots of examples, but I, I always go with contractions because contractions they're easy. So uh, we do, everybody knows the famous WANA ones, right? And some of the people who are non-UG's people argue against the WANA contractions, but I've extended the argument because you can look at con- contractions more generally. So everybody knows you contract want to to WANA, right, Angelica? Mm-hmm. We've done this before. So um, I can say, I want to go, and I can say, I want to go, right? Yep. And I can say, um, uh, let's see, I can say, um, who do you want to come to the party? And I can say, who do you want to come to the party, right? Mm-hmm. And but then I have a problem when I say, who do you want to tell Walter to be quiet? Hmm. Who do you want to tell Walter to be quiet is really weird. Hmm. You go, hmm, that's not English. You can't do a wanna there. There's something wrong with that sentence. How do you know that? Because there's nothing in the input that tells you you can't do wanna there. And then if you extend it, you go, okay, well, look at other contractions. For example, I can do I and have to do I, right? Mm-hmm. So I have done it and I've done it. Right, Walter? Si, senor. Si, senor. And then I could say, I could say, I should have done it, and I could say, I should have done it, correct? I can contract mm-hmm. should have. But the minute I make a question, should I have done it, I can no longer contract. Should I've done it. Doesn't that sound weird, Walter? That's just not English. You can't Bizarre. do it. So there's something going on with contractions across the board that says you can contract in some environments, but you can't contract in others. 
where does that come from? How do you get that knowledge that something is not permitted in a language? And it's not just because it's, you don't hear it. That, I mean, because the opposite of that is you can say things that you never hear that are grammatical. So it, the absence in the input is, that, is not indicative of something ungrammatical. This just means you haven't heard it. So something in your mind is telling you you can't contract in this environment. So what is it? And again, that goes back to hidden phrase structure and things that move around and so on. Um, and so there's, it's that kind of data that makes people think, makes linguists go, there's something going on um, in the human mind that predisposes the learner to, to come to conclusions about language that go way beyond what is available to them in the input data. Um, and I think that too many people, the, the, as again, I said early on, the devil's in the details. UG, linguistic theory is an incredibly complex and abstract thing to get into. Right, And so it's hard for people to conceptualize it because in their minds, language is what they see in textbooks. Grammar is verbs agree. Um, grammar is the subjunctive. Grammar is auxiliary verbs in English. And that's not what we're talking about linguistic theory. We're talking about something much more abstract and much deeper. Um, and so, and, and those things that you see are like the surface phenomena of some much deeper, deeper things going on. And so, and, and unfortunately, in a show like this, we can't get in those details because we could spend, I mean, students take years, take a whole year on syntax, for example, just to uncover what syntax is when they do linguistics and how could we treat that in a show. So I just invite people to read this book. That's the SLA challenge question that um, Scott called in about. Uh, or The Language Instinct that Walter talked about. These are great books for people that if they want to know more about universal grammar, one of our jobs in the show is to point you in directions of things you can read when you're on the plane, if you're going somewhere, or on a boat. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, and one other Twitter thing before we go to uh, Mixler or email is uh, uh, Longinus said that um, a little bird told me that universal grammar is unfalsifiable and not a valid scientific theory. What say you? It actually is a falsifiable theory because what people think uh, all falsifiable means is that you can test it, that you can run an experiment or you can find, you can look for data um, uh, to test a hypothesis, right? And uh, that's what linguists do. They do this all the time. Um, and that's how universal grammar has evolved over the years in terms of the theory has been refined. It's because people have been able to test hypotheses from the theory and find out, well, that's not quite the way it works, so maybe it works this other way. And then they test those hypotheses, and lo and behold, those are the ones that hold up after we get the data. So it, it actually is testable. It is falsifiable in the classic sense of, of science. So I'll just throw that out there for people. Anyway. I'm getting off the track here. So what do we got? We got anything on Mixler, anything on email, Wally? What's going on Mixler? People, are they like falling asleep out there on Gallica? Like this is too heavy? But people wanted to talk about universal grammar, so. I've got a question here. Well, actually, I just have someone wanting you to address something. All right. Um, this is Reed from Hawaii. And Reed says, can you talk about emergentist versus or emergentist usage-based perspectives in a, to balance or at least moderately te modestly temper the discussion on universal grammar? No, because there's nothing to temper about universal grammar. I mean, the emergentist stuff is just a different perspective. That's what we're going to talk about next week. I'll talk about emergentism next week. Um, and um, I actually think that both theories 
are correct. But the, the problem is both theories are circumscribed in what they can explain. And that's the problem is people want to make one theory explain everything, and that's actually wrong. And so I think emergentism explains one thing, and I think a universal grammar position explains another, and they're not the same thing. Um, so, but I'll get into that next week because that's that's again that's a whole show about that. Um, and in fact, in my 2003 book, I talked about that actually. I laid out a framework for teachers that showed how you could have usage-based stuff and you could have a UG-based kind of thing going on at the same time. Um, because as J- I'll just I'll give the hint for next week, Reed, and anybody else out there, is that Jason hinted at it when he said that you have to learn stuff from the environment. You got to do something with input, right? So there's something going on in, in our general learning mechanism that's responsible for helping you get the input and do things with the input, but it's UG that's responsible for that actual language representation, that deep abstract stuff that's going on. Um, and, um, and just on a pro-UG side right now against emergentism and trying to explain everything, because emergentism does try to explain everything, is that emergentism cannot explain the kind of ungrammaticality that UG people talk about. Um, it, it just cannot. Um, but there's things that emergentism is really good at talking about. We'll do that next week. So I promise we'll do that because we're going to continue this topic. Anything else going on? What's going on in the Mixler world? Do-do-do-do. Not that much, really. Gosh, just, they're like quiet out there. We got somebody going to call in here in a minute on the phone, but I'm going to just, before we take a phone call, I'm going to just, can I adjust that topic that Jason brought up about teaching? I actually asked him about teaching, and he said, well, you're better, you're better equipped to answer that bill than I am about um, what universal grammar uh, might suggest for teaching. There are people who work with universal grammar, linguists, who in the second language field, who actually think that what universal grammar research can help us do is identify what's difficult, and therefore we can teach that. The stuff that's going to take care of itself, we don't need to teach. But then we have to focus and practice, and they use the word practice, those things that cause difficulty. I don't think that's the right conclusion from universal grammar research because it's not clear to me that those things that are difficult are learned through explicit teaching and practice either. They just may take more time. Again, what what linguists and non-linguists, I mean like emergentism, keep forgetting is just how long the process is. They want acquisition to happen two and three and four and five years like a child language learner because they're looking at years and not hours and time on task. So, um, and, and so we'll, we'll get into that again next week. But Okay, we got a call in line. We have uh, Thaddeus from Ukraine is on the line, all the way from Ukraine. Are you there? Yes, I'm right here. Oh, gr- great. Are you actually calling from Ukraine, or are you from the Ukraine and calling somewhere else? <laughs> um, no, actually, I'm in Ukraine right now. I'm an English language fellow on a State Department-funded fellowship. Well, great for you. Good and for you. And I'm teaching English here, so I'm actually calling from Ukraine. Well, good. Wow. Well, thanks for calling all the way. You're our first caller from that neck of the woods. How's that? Yeah. You get a gold star. You get a gold star. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I was hoping uh, first to, to just make a comment and then go ahead. hopefully not get things too far off from where you were heading. That's quite all right. <laughs> um, uh, first, I just wanted to say, you know, that I, that I really appreciate your show. I, I kind of found it in the middle of my, my first fellowship year. I'm on my second fellowship. And I do a lot of teacher training here. And it's really helped me to kind of um, 
look at research that would kind of support the teacher training that I do with local teachers. And I recommend your show a lot. And uh, you'd mentioned feedback you'd gotten recently about adding more meat to your show. Mm -hmm. And I think that this this is a perfect example. I I know a lot of colleagues here in Ukraine who who would really appreciate being able to hear a, a nice summary and introduction that would hopefully compel them to dig a little deeper. And I think this kind of show is a really good example of that. So All right. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for well, thank you for saying that. And and we do recommend readings when we actually talk about readings on on the on the air. I, I try to select things, and Walter tries to select things that actually are accessible. We don't want to give you anything too highfalutin that's going to go. You know, that's it's like one egghead talking to another egghead. We really want teachers to be able to grapple with with things. And any intelligent person who's got a bachelor's degree should be able to read some of the things that, that we're talking about. So hopefully hopefully that, that works for people as well. So but thank you Thaddeus for your is it's, it's Thaddeus, is that how you say your name? That's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. And okay. there's one additional component to that. It's it's access as well. Here a lot of the trouble is affordability of that research. Right. Of access to that research. And a lot of what my local colleagues experience is is feeling like they don't really have access to to information uh, published in, a, in in proper peer review, peer reviewed journals in the United States, right? And they're just kind of not aware of what's going on in second language acquisition research. And a lot of what your show does is it kind of you know gives a little bit of that information. Mm-hmm. So, so again, uh, the, anyway, the the question I wanted to ask um, in, in talking about the positive aspects, if if we kind of uh, go with uh, universal grammar today, mm-hmm. uh, w- one thing that I encounter a lot here. Um, which kind of points back to what I think is maybe more of an early, uh, kind of an earlier aspect of the um, the dialogue about universal grammar as opposed to behaviorism and how conditioning, the thought that conditioning could kind of explain language acquisition and how universal grammar kind of, um, with the poverty of the stimulus argument, kind of pointed out that there were factors of language acquisition that couldn't be explained by reinforcement or punishment or whatever. Correct. Um, it, how that relates to teaching, I think, is with corrective feedback, and I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, go ahead. That's, um, that's I think a lot of times topical. why teachers... Sorry, can you hear me? Yes. Uh-huh. A lot of the times I think why teachers uh, use so much corrective feedback and, and really think it's important for students um, kind of uh, sounds behaviorist to me, <laughs> that they feel like that that is reinforcement, uh, that they're in some way giving feedback that's, that's necessary, and through that conscious feedback, um, somehow that would somehow help them with, that, with acquiring a language in a more efficient way. And, and how I feel, at least, uh, in, in trying to understand the, the initial um, movement away from behaviorism as an ex- explanation for language acquisition, is that it's, it's things like that. It's uh, social factors or uh, motivational factors or, so, or, um, or disciplinary factors, if you will, um, the, those things can't create some kind of uh, fast track or a jump in the process of acquisition. But but I'd like to hear what you what you think about how maybe the the behavioral roots of some of those oral corrective uh, techniques in classrooms kind of relate to the earlier discussions about behaviorism in universal grammar. R- right. I I I. I... Let me let me tell you what my take is on this, Thaddeus, and then you can you can okay. tell me if I'm addressing the behavioral side of things from your perspective. I, I think that those who are big believers and there are scholars who research this stuff and are big proponents of some kind of feedback, uh, corrective mm-hmm. feedback, whether it's whether it's direct or indirect feedback, 
Um, I think fundamentally two things are going on. And I know I'm going to get calls on this, and i got good friends in the field to do this kind of research. Um, but I think there's two things going on. One, they don't trust the role of input. They, they, even though they, they might say input is crucial and fundamental, they just don't trust it. And they don't trust the language learning mechanisms in your head to do what they need to do. Um, and so that's one thing. And, this, and the second thing is r- related to that is that underlyingly they're not admitting that deep down inside they believe that second language acquisition is fundamentally different from first language acquisition. Um, and so if, 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 if I'm right on that, that's a whole nother discussion to have. Right. Um, and so, and I don't know how that relates to the behaviors and behavioral stuff. I think feedback has evolved somewhat from the strong behavioral kinds of discussions of, of, of feedback back in the, you know, well, since Pavlov and since, you know, the whole paradigm emerged in the, in the early 20th century, um, but it does have some roots in that, in the sense that the whole idea is, um, you are you are you are reinforcing something one way or another. When when you when you question what somebody says, you're providing them some some kind of negative reinforcement. Like I didn't understand it, you better say it again, right? And that 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 is a kind of negative reinforcement. Um, and so I th- I think I think you're onto something there. That those things are still rooted in the past, and that's one thing about language acquisition and language teaching that is so difficult. Um, all we've done over the years, in, in my estimation, I shouldn't say all, I'm being too critical here, but we keep layering every generation that comes up with ideas. We wind up as a profession because we can't abandon that which came before. We layer ideas on top of old ideas on top of old ideas on top of old ideas. And so so now what we have is a hodgepodge of things in some ways in language teaching where we can't let go of some aspects of behaviorism even though we should just let go of them um, while we're dealing with issues of input and interaction or whatever you want to call it, universal grammar and so on. And so people just have a hard time of shifting completely. They, they move in steps. They don't move in leaps and bounds is what I'm saying. Mm. And so and, and I think that that might be true of all disciplines. I don't know. Uh, but it seems to me in language teaching that there's, we have a lot of residual things hanging on because people just, we just keep layering on. So, for example, when the communicative revolution happened in the 1970s, there was no real revolution. There were people who took behaviorist paradigms and sort of like disguised them with a little bit of communicative stuff. Right? right, which is how Christina Bratt Paulson came up with her famous hierarchy of mechanical, meaningful, and communicative quote-unquote drills. I mean, like, what the heck, right? But that's her, that was her contribution. A lot of people bought into that, and there was a whole generation of teachers trained on that kind of thing, and people started to think of communicative language teaching as of, of, of a new kind of behaviorism in many ways. And then when the role of input was ushered in, and then people saw the way to use input in the classroom, was an, they, they layered that on top of behaviorism and other kinds of things, and you wind up... Input became a technique for people to use to do old behaviorist kinds of things, which is where now the feedback comes in that you're talking about. So, I mean, so I think that's what's happened. We just keep layering, 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 rather than actually saying, no, we're talking about something completely different here, a a whole different paradigm. And it's really hard. It's really hard for people to do that, I think, in life. So that's probably probably why we're where we're at on some of those things with feedback. Sure. Yeah, you you know, I know that recasting and uh, I was reading Quarter from 1967, reading a, 
what he had to say kind of maybe leaning more towards like a clarification request because it's it's kind of giving the learner more of a chance to you know to to try an alternate strategy um and it's not so conscious it's not a conscious like you you did that wrong try it again right it's more of just pardon excuse me and right. gives them a chance to to go at it a different way so no, exactly. Anyway, it's Maybe. interesting to see how those things go around and go around. Yeah, and, th- and that's different because those are communication issues and what they have to do with acquisition. Sure. You know, those are those we can talk about. But yeah, exactly. So, well, great, Thaddeus. Thanks, thanks for calling. Thanks for your question and thanks for your observations and comments. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for taking my call. Oh, absolutely. Thank call you. in any time. We love having people call from all over the world. <laughs> all right. Okay. Have a good show. All right. You too. Bye bye. Thanks, thanks for Thaddeus. calling. Bye bye. I, f- I forgot to Bye. ask him. I, f- I forgot to ask Thaddeus what time it was there. What, do you know what time it is in in Ukraine? It's probably about eight hours difference, maybe. Not that really six. It's Seven. five. Probably it was, ask it's, fi- it's five to two, Jason, yeah. oh. and then um, and then probably another three hours. Is it two to three hours to Turkey? And it's ten fifty two p.m. Yep, I googled it as well. Ten so go. seven hours. Okay, right. All right, good. Okay, Angelica, do you have a quote for people? I sure do. Yay! Yay! Okay. My quote is from the book Second Language Acquisition that was just published in 2016 by Oxford University Press by Rumiyana Slabakova. Yay! Another UG person, by the way, another linguistic theory person. And here goes the quote. This is a little box on page 18 that's titled Teaching Relevance. In acquiring a second language, some linguistic modules may present more difficulty than others. For example, it is well known that the phonetics phonology of a second language, if it is acquired after childhood, may never become native-like. This is not true of the semantics or the morphosyntax, however. In short, different modules may be acquired in different ways. That is why knowledge of the modules is relevant for teachers. Aha. Kind of what we were getting at earlier, that mm-hmm. some people think that yep. UG, if you understand the linguistics of it, then some parts will be harder than others. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. I think I actually think it's a good idea for, for teachers to have some basic knowledge of how language works. Mm-hmm. just helps them understand the object of what it is they're doing and how complex it is. So, yeah, well, well thank you. Uh, Rumiana does some good work. She's been around for a while, so... Um, thank you, Rumiana, for that. We got another call on the line. We have Stephen from Maryland. Stephen, are you on the line? I'm here. Hey, Stephen. Do you go by Stephen or Steve or? I Steph- go by Stephen. Stephen. Well, great, Stephen. Or Esteban. Esteban. Esteban or Stephen. Whatever. We like both. Yeah. We like both. So, what's up? What are you calling yeah. about, Stephen? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a high school Spanish teacher. This is my first year um, teaching, and we are getting. Uh, we're going to be selecting some new textbooks for the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is basically, does the concept, of the theory of uh, UG, is that something like we should specifically look at when we're looking at these new textbooks? No, um, and, and no, no, and you won't find any reference to UG. Most textbooks are uninformed. <laughs> but right. I hate to say it, it at, at, at any level, whether it's K through twelve or university level, most textbooks are uninformed. I know I'm going to get yelled at for saying this. Huh. Um, are, well, are are not very are not. Let me put it this way. They're not largely informed. I wouldn't say uninformed. That's, that's unfair. They are not largely informed by current theory uh, and research for, for a variety of reasons, which we've talked on this show before. So, Right. Uh, in terms of, like, sequencing, um, I know focusing on specific grammar and, and isolating that is not the best idea. 
but if that's what we're given, is there any kind of, um, I guess, sequencing from, as far as acquisition goes, would, would that would universal grammar kind of inform that? Uh, not really. I mean, it, it can. There, there's some debate in the field about the extent to which universal grammar explains some of the developmental phenomena we see in um, okay. language acquisition, um, like morpheme orders and developmental sequences and things like that. Um, right. It depends on which analysis you look at. But um, I mean, it explains a lot of other things. But 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 it's not always to my satisfaction to explain some of those things. Um, and my answer, my I think the best thing I could tell you is. No matter what textbook you get, learners are going to do what learners are going to do with the language. There's no way to sequence right. anything in a particular way because you also have individual differences anyway. So Walter's going to be at one pace and Gelk's going to be at another pace and Luca's going to be at another pace and Dustin's going to be at another pace. So I'm a teacher and I still have to sequence things, but even though I sequence it in a certain order that might look like it's acquisition-oriented, someone's going to be faster than somebody. Um, right. And so it's you know it, you, you wind up... You wind up n- not everybody on the same page anyway. So, okay. So I, I would pick my best advice with my textbook is pick the one that has the most interesting things to talk about, the most interesting uh, topics, and the most interesting themes in it. That's how I would select a textbook at this point in time. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely, they they do much better when it's when it comes up. Yep. Yep. And and supplement with lots of reading. Um, you can go to the, one of the PR sites like Fluency Matters and so on, mm-hmm. and find some yep. really really good things that that will uh, supplement that, that that will get students really charged and involved. So yeah, that's yeah, what I would do. I I had them do a reading um, as a subplan. I, I had uh, Newzella has like up to date current events, so I had a Super Bowl reading, and about like two thirds of the class picked that Super Bowl article over a couple of other articles. So yep. They were, yep. They were excited. There you go. All right. Well, good luck on that, Stephen. Thanks for calling in. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I love that he goes, Esteban. I love that. (laughs) Esteban is so Spanish to me. I don't know any Estebans in my... Esteban was never a name in my family. They were all Manuel and and names like that. Um, Tico and Tico Roberto, things like that. Mm -hmm. So... All right. Well, nobody called in with our Diva Challenge question. Should I let? Should I give it to Walter to answer? Yes, do it. <laughs> okay. So Walter, you, if you if you can answer this, chance, Walter, man. we got fifty percent chance. You got you got like thirty seconds to answer this question before we got to do a wrap up, Walter. So who has okay. more Grammys, Adele or Barbara Streisand? Well, it seems like it would be logical for Barbara Streisand to have them, but I don't know why you'd be asking the question if that were the case. So I'm going to say Adele. Yeah. I only asked the question because. She won Grammys the other night, and it was topical. I thought, you know, it's timely, right? Yep. The answer is it's Adele. Yep. Here's, the, here's why. Adele has actually won outright in her short career 15 Grammys. Streisand has more Grammys, but only seven of them were won. The rest of those Lifetime Grammys, the Legend Grammy, you know, Star of the Decade Grammy, you know, things like that. But she's only won actual seven Grammys. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, so, Adele, there you go. So who do you like yes. better? Well, we got to we got to <laughs> hang up. We got to get going. Okay, so we're going to do our acknowledgments now. So we want to thank Daniel Trago and great job today on that phone call to the UK. Our media producer Luca Giappone. Thank you Luca. Our talented and trusted call handler today, Jen. She's doing a great job as our intern and Dustin DeFelice who's been helping her. Our wonderful assistant production manager Jeff Maloney who's a little bit off these days because of his work he's doing. On um, the College of Arts and Letters at MSU, especially our dean Christopher Long. Uh, as a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters or any of our sponsors or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And, of course, we thank all of you listeners out there as well. 
tune in next week. We're going to continue with UG, look at some alternatives, maybe emergentism, who knows? Until then, we have a great weekend. It's going to be my birthday. Wish me a happy Woo-hoo! birthday. And happy second language acquisition to everybody out there. Bye, folks. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, 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 bye. <laughs> bye, 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 bye. What's going on? That's my baby. Bye, bye. Bye, 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 bye. <laughs> Happy birthday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to say happy birthday to me. I'm like, it's too early. Too old. I'm too old, my God. (laughs) Good thing there's no cake with candles. We'd have to have the fire marshal in there. (laughs) 